All right, students, yesterday we talked about sloth, avarice, and prodigality, as well as gluttony. Recall that the slothful had to run around in rapid succession around the terrace they were in. Unlike their lazy sorts of lives, they now have to make haste. And that leads us to the, the expiating virtue of sloth. Recall that it was zeal or eagerness, that which gets you to jump out of bed like a lightning bolt out of the sky. And so good. Then we moved on from that to avarice and prodigality. Recall, recall that avarice is a fancy word for greed and prodigality for being a spendthrift, for having money run through your hand as water does, for not being able to keep money in your pockets. And so the avarice, we recall, were either, there were two expiating virtues for them. It was either poverty or generosity, and some combination of both. Perhaps it is the generosity of making yourself more impoverished by giving that which you have. And we recall that this is a lesson we learned well from Menelaus in the Odyssey last year, that he said that rather than having all the gold and treasures of Egypt that he had from his many years there and his time at Troy, that he would give away two-thirds of his wealth just to have his friends back. And uh, he seems to understand what the true value of life is. And recall also we met Statius there. Statius was a first century Roman poet who will be one of our guides all the way through the end of purgatory and that we experienced an earthquake. Very interesting phenomenon on this island. We then move on to the gluttonous. Recall that the gluttonous are now starved and parched in the same way that Tantalus in Hades last year was starved and parched. Um, forever steeped in water to his chin that would recede whenever he tries to drink it and with a fruit tree with figs and pears and apples and several other olives as well, several other sorts of fruits that don't normally grow on a tree, but in this underworld tree they do, um, right above his head that would recede if he tried to reach up to them. That's very much similar to the punishment for the, um, for the gluttonous. And recall that the expiating virtue with them is temperance. And so, ah, one funny thing to start today with is you might remember from yesterday that we said that Statius has been in purgatory for 1,200 years. It's 1,200 long years, 365 days each of suffering up the mountain. In fact, he was with the slothful for 400 years because of his late, uh, his late admitting of his conversion to Christianity in his life. Uh, something funny about that is it took him 1,200 years. Uh, Dante's friend, Farisi Donati, who is related to his wife, Gemma Donati, who he had the uh, rap battle with, where, where uh, Farisi calls his father um, avaricious, greedy, uh, stealing from people's graves. And uh, Dante calls Farisi uh, gluttonous or fat and says that he cannot um, provide husbandly services to his wife. Well, that Farisi is already up to the gluttonous after five years in purgatory. Only five years. He's already higher than Statius was. And the reason is, and this might uh, make your fairness circuitry uh, short circuit, because his wife, Nella, prays so much for him. Apparently she spends all day, every day, just praying and crying for him, sort of like in a Penelope-like way for Odysseus. And so I thought that was just something worth noting because we have to go so quickly through the end here. So let's talk about the lustful. So let's jump immediately into the examples of chastity and lust. And so we see that the expiating virtue of lust is chastity. And to be chaste means to, to maintain one's innocence as a, a, 
to maintain one's physical innocence in light of sexual behavior. So Diana was a chaste goddess. She was a virginal goddess. Athena was a chaste goddess. She was a virginal goddess. Mary is considered a chaste human in that she was considered, uh, she also did parthenogenesis. That's uh, the sort of Greekish word for virgin birth. And so these are all figures of untrammeled nature or <clears throat> the maternal force of nature to over and over again have something spring forth from it. And so let's talk about it. So the examples of chastity and lust are provided by the penitents themselves. So again, we have the art embodied in the characters, just as we did down in the slothful, but not, not among, or excuse me, as we did uh, amongst the avarice, no, yes, the slothful, but not as we had in uh, the gluttonous, the, the trees is where the, uh, the examples came from last time. And so also note that unlike in the Inferno, when the souls are being buffeted by winds in the second circle of it, but the first real circle after Limbo, where the lustful are there, they're sort of being uh, blown about by winds in the way that they were blown about by their passions and not subject to their self-control, we determine. What's happening to these souls, however, is that they're getting burned alive with a raging fire. They have to walk into the raging fire, and this is literally one of the final states of purgation. This is a literal purgation. Just as the word purgation shares the root of the word pyre or fire, this is them incinerating the final vestiges of their physical and mental sin. They are burning it away in sort of a fire-like baptism. And so the first example of chastity we get is one that I just mentioned. It is, of course, Mary, like it has always been, going up through the purgatorio. And we get another bit of Latin. Virum, man, non, not, cognosco, I know. I know not man. And the idea is that she did not know her husband, Joseph, before she became pregnant. And yet, she was pregnant. And so what seems to be uh, interesting there is that she is, she is bearing the fruits of reproduction without giving into the sin of lust is the idea there and that something beautiful can come from something potentially very ugly in another way because the second example makes more explicit what the first example might have as an under or subtext so the second example is greco-roman it comes from ovid's metamorphoses it's generally considered a pretty unfair story or at least just see how you feel when you hear it. Diana, Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, as we know, she's a chaste virginal goddess. One thing, in order to be one of her servants, if you were nymph or woman, you had to be a maiden. That means a woman under reproduction age. So a young girl, essentially. And so Diana, maiden goddess, expelled her nymph Callisto, sometimes called Helica, uh, for being raped by Jupiter, also a divinity choosing to impregnate a mortal. So the idea there is that Callisto, who would later have a very famous son whose name has popped out of my head, but um, it is the son who gets thrown in the, to the stars with her and she becomes the Big Dipper or Ursa Major and he becomes the Little Dipper, Ursa Minor. Did you know who? No? Okay, good. Well, the idea here is that these, these women are beyond lust. They are chaste. They are... 
They bear the fruits of reproduction without suffering the, sin, the sinful or erroneous desire which might lead them astray. Something close to that. We'll, we'll be able to think about it later. All right, in any case, here are the examples of lust. And something interesting here is that I think the, the first example that's given, Sodom and Gomorrah, it is a traditional example. And, of course, the word Sodom is where we get the word sodomite, which is a word for homosexual behavior today. And so, and a form, uh, or excuse me, a form of illegal form of it, uh, depending on what state you live in. And so, Sodom and Gomorrah. The story here basically is that there are these people, they were actually angels, they show up in this city, they're often offered hospitality, and then this group of individuals outside, generally men considered, shows up and demands to have their way with these angels. The man who's holding these angels says, no, 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 these people are under my protection. Would be much better if you even took my two daughters. And the mob says, no, 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 we want these angels. And uh, eventually the angels, I think, say something like to the, uh, the, the host, it's okay, we can take care of ourselves, but tomorrow we're going to burn this city to the ground, and you and your family should probably walk on. And uh, the man who was their host <coughs> took them out. Unfortunately, his wife turned around, like Orpheus did in the underworld, turned into a pillar of salt. Don't turn around seems to be, or don't look back once you've made a big decision, seems to be the idea, whether you're Orpheus, whether you're the figure in this story. In any case, I think that the main idea behind that story is supposed to be honor the zinnia, honor the guest host relationship to people who are terrible, or, you, or your civilization will collapse. That is the true meaning of that story. But a sub-meaning of it seems to be, or at least how it's been interpreted, is that that city was destroyed because of their homosexual desires. And that one can be destroyed by one's desire, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual, is certainly a point that Dante will make here. Because he gives us not only the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, but also of Pacifae and, or Pacifae and the Minotaur. And so you might have thought that Sodom and Gomorrah was a story of uh, dissoluteness. No, 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 not compared to this one. This is about as dissolute as it gets in Greek mythology. So, you may all remember that there was once an archetypal king of Crete, son of Zeus, named King Minos. King Minos had a wife named Pasiphae. She fell in love. She was inflamed with a desire for a handsome white bull. She asked a famous inventor, the man who created the the labyrinth and the father of Icarus who fell to his death with wings on his back after the wax on them had melted. She asked this Daedalus character to make for her a bull in effigy so that she could couple with the bull. He did this. She did this. And then she had a minotaur baby, which was the great shame of Crete. The idea being here that she was twisted by her desire for this bull and something misshapen and chimerical, potentially evil in its dual nature, was produced from this. It reminds me very similar of what um, of the story we recently considered Cain and Abel, where it says that Cain has coupled with sin. Where when you couple yourself with an act or a desire, or a, when, you when your action reflects a desire, which is not in accordance with your ultimate goals, that you produce 
that you produce a situation or a thing that is, um, well, an abomination in this case, an abomination. So, huh. Huh, huh, huh. In any case, let's talk now about a couple poets. I don't need you to write down anything but what I have here. One in B and one in B. So, Guido Guinizelli and Arno Daniel. So, up here in the law school, we see burning alive, essentially, even though they're dead, uh, Guido Guinizelli and Arno Daniel. These are both uh, two excellent poets, two love poets, one from Provenzal, one uh, in Italian, of course. And so Dante considered Guido Guinizelli, was from Bologna, the founding father of lyric poetry. So just as we know Bonajunta de Luca, because of his contributions to, um, our, uh, to lyric poetry, so do we know um, Guido Guinizelli for the same reason, except for to an even greater extent. Founding father of lyric poetry that Dante sought himself to emulate and perfect. And so, inspired by an ennobling conception of love, such poetry in Dante's view was characterized by a beautiful, harmonious style worthy of its subject matter. Guido, whose reputation was already noted by a penitent on the Terrace of Pride, appears here on the seventh and final Terrace of Purgatory, purging himself of lust within flames shooting out of the face of the mountain across the pathway. That's taken from Dante World. And okay, so Guido Guinizelli is here because of his great uh, contributions to poetry. He is the founding father of poetry from Bologna in Italy. Dante sought to emulate his style, but apparently, since Guido Guinizelli is here amongst the lustful, his style must not have been pure and chaste and loving and charitable, but also had elements of what in it? Obviously, lust. And so, since Sante Dante excuse me, sought to emulate, imitate Guido Guinizelli, what must he also have emulated that was in Guinizelli? The lustful elements, which indicates that insofar as you use another person as model for you and your behavior, you might acquire their virtues at the same time that you also acquire their what? Their vices. Right, which is precisely why when you get to the top of the purgatorio, you're going to be you're going to have to be able to think for yourself so that you can separate the wheat from the chaff, the erroneous from the honest, the helpful from the unhelpful, the tools from the obstacles or hindrances. Good. All right. Let's now talk, and I'm very sad that I don't have more time to talk about Arno Daniel here. One thing I will say about him is he was a poet from Provençal, which means he spoke a sort of French-like dialect, and that he, of all the characters in this story, gets to speak in his original language. At the very end of Canto 26, where he's at, and recall that Canto 26 is always the canto of poems and poetry in uh, the Divine Comedy. Canto 26 in the Inferno housed Ulysses, who was within fire. You now see Arno Daniel, who is within fire and speaks his own language. In Canto 26 of the Paradiso, we will meet Adam, first man, first user of language, and thus ultimate poet. Because he created language, he used the first one. And poetry is the vessel of language and thought. And so, there we go. So Arno Daniel gets to speak in his original language, but something funny about this is that Dante is not quoting him, but is rather writing, is writing a fictional piece. He is providing the words for Arno Daniel in his tongue as Dante has thought them up. So even though he is writing in... He has the character Arno write in the language of Provençal. 
The language itself does not come from Arno, but comes from Dante, which I think is sort of a clever and funny thing to add in there. Um, let me see. Do I want you to know anything specific about him beyond that? No, honestly, that's fine. Let's talk about the last dream. Dream three of three. So, first dream, Ganymede. It's picked up by an eagle of Jupiter and taken off to heaven. And that's the same time Dante is picked up and taken to the first gate of purgatory. As if things can happen, as if you can make progress even in your dreams. Which would have been an interesting quote to see in any of your essays. Hmm, hmm, hmm. The second dream was about a siren witch who was ugly when we could see her clearly, but was beautiful when we let her get under our skin like sensual pleasures. This third dream is clear and tranquil rather than violent, rather than shocking. And it features two women. One, Leah, gathering flowers to make into a garland. Young, beautiful. And she tells how her sister Rachel never stops observing her reflection in a mirror. One appears to be doing, making something, a garland, Leah. One appears to be reflecting, thinking in a mirror, Rachel. Something interesting about them is that there is a story from the Old Testament that there was a character, Jacob, who was the brother of Esau. And he went to go work for a farmer for seven years on the promise that he would get to marry her daughter, or his daughter. The unfortunate thing is this Jacob, though, he's a trickster himself, and very similar to Odysseus in that, A, he's so tricky that he tricks his brother, and B, that he's such a good wrestler that he fights with it, that he wrestles with an angel or God, in the same way that Odysseus is a great wrestler, and often, with his tongue at least, will wrestle with either Athena or Calypso, or even Circe with the gods. Well, Jacob in this moment was a trickster being tricked. Because he said, I'd like to marry your daughter. He meant Rachel. He didn't stipulate that. And so after his seven years, he says, may I marry your daughter? Farmer says, yes, here's Leah. Major bummer for old Jacob. He says, but, but, what, can I still marry Rachel? And the farmer says, yes, if you give me another seven years of labor. And so the idea seems to be if Leah represents active activity or the active way of life, the life of doing things, and Rachel shows the speculative way of life, the reflecting way of life, the way of life like a philosopher where you seek to understand why people do things, you might then understand that you must first act and then reflect in life. You must have the actions present within the theater of your mind in order to abstract and parse them apart and to see how things work. And in fact, you might also see in this account what Dante's perception, mirroring Aristotle's perception of the good life is. One in which you just act or just think, one in which you're married to both. And isn't that exactly what the action of the entire Purgatorio is? You do all day, you reflect all night. You reflect on that which you do in order to do better the next day. What is better than that for a human life? Otherwise, you just stay in the same place, the inferno, going nowhere, doing nothing, with no hope. <laughs> well, I suppose the option is uh, there for all of us. All right, good. Good, 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 good. And just from Dante's Convivio, which means banquet in Italian, 
he said he makes this explicit for us. We must know, however, that we may have two kinds of happiness in this life according to two differing paths, one good and the other best, which lead us there. One is the active life, the other the contemplative life. And although by the active, as has been said, we may arrive at a happiness that is good, the other leads us to the best happiness and state of bliss, as the philosopher proves in the 10th book of the Ethics. The philosopher is Aristotle. The book of Ethics is the Nicomachean Ethics. We can read that together at some point if you would like to. Two of the books actually feature friendship, and I really love that discussion. It's a very good discussion of friendship. He talks about three different sorts of friends. The friends of the good being the top ones. Friends of pleasure being the middle ones, and friends of utility being the bottom ones. Perhaps you can categorize your own friends in that way. I know that I have at times. All right, earthly paradise. Let's conclude this in the next 15 minutes or so. Take a look at these pictures. We have earthly paradise. We have a griffin there with a procession behind it. We have another griffin here with a procession in front of it. We have some William Blake, very famous pictures of the griffin and the chariot behind it and the holy ladies and the virtues. And we have also a giant with the whore of Babylon is actually how she's called with a dragon uh, behind them. Well, that will be what the church transforms into. I'll explain exactly what that means because I've never seen anybody actually do this. So welcome to the garden of earthly paradise, a primeval, untouched by man, eternal sort of place. Perhaps it is a place uh, within our minds. And so the return to earthly terrestrial paradise is a return home. It's the end of the journey, but recall it was also the beginning of the journey for mankind. In fact, the language even suggests that Eden is the dark wood in which we started this text. And I'll butcher this Italian a little, but Vago già di cerca dentro e dentorno la divina foresta spessa e viva. Caliocchi temperava il nuovo giorno, sans più aspettar la sciai, la riva prendendo la campagna lento lento, Super lo sol che donia parte oliva. So I apologize for my pronunciation, but this is as good as I can do right now. Now keen to search within, to search around that forest dense, alive with green, divine, which tempered the new day before my eyes. Without delay, I left behind the rise and took the plane advancing slowly, slowly across the ground where every part was fragrant. So I'd like to mention this quote just because now keen to search within. He's no longer scared as he was at the beginning of the Inferno. It's green and divine. It's not dark and gloomy. He's tempered with the new day. It was evening when he first came to the Inferno. Without delay, he's not hesitating now. He's eager. It's showing that he has replaced the errors and sins within himself with now virtues. And now he's on a plane. Plane is flat, not a mountain going up. And he advances slowly, but he does advance. He does not have to retreat here. He is in the same place, but the opposite place from where he first began his journey, from where we first began our journey with him in Inferno 1. In fact, if I were to read it a little bit, halfway along the road we have to go, I found myself obscured in a great forest, bewildered. You're not moving anywhere then. And I knew I had lost the way. It's hard to say just what the forest was like. He knows what it's like now. How wild and rough it was. How overpowering. Even to remember it makes me afraid. So bitter it is. Death itself is hardly more so. Yet there was good there. To make it clear, I will speak of other things that I perceive. 
I wonder now if he is physically in some way in the same place, but mentally in a very different place. As if changing one's attitude towards the world and one's activities within it changes one's life and one's perception of the world. Very interesting. All right, so a couple of details. Eden, terrestrial paradise, earthly paradise, all synonyms when we're talking about this. Is this, this is rather, the first place man existed, but is the final stage of Dante's temporal journey. Just as the beginning exists outside of time, so does the end. Eden was where man began, began, and where he strives to return to through time, from perfection through ignorance to perfection through knowledge. So recall that Eden is a place where man was originally ignorant when he did not know the difference between good and evil. He had not yet eaten from the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil. And this is in, I think, Genesis uh, 2, or uh, yes, very close to there, the Old Testament. And so the way that one gets back to Eden after falling from it, after first acquiring knowledge as well, perfecting one's knowledge apparently by removing the errors that one acquires in the world and moving back towards a state of working without suffering, which is, hmm, it's almost like if you acquire skill, enough skill to live your life in a perfectly balanced and harmonious way, that then it will be as if even though you are putting out work, you are not suffering while you do it because the meaning that fills your work will make it worthwhile. Huh. I wonder, because there are people that work very hard around us, and that would make sense. So let's talk about some of the features of the uh, terrestrial paradise, and let's meet the guardian of terrestrial paradise, Matilda. We have a female figure here, a feminine figure. We'll meet another feminine figure here um, Beatrice, finally, and I would say that the garden itself is a feminine figure in that it is the place of birth of humanity where two rivers are sourced. And so the source of all existence for humans is obviously our mother. A feminine symbol for the source of all things is obviously the earth. And so we have an accumulation of sort of maternal, original feminine symbols here. It's also very much natural. That's associated with the feminine as well. All right, meet Matilda. Like Eve, first woman, or Persephone, Matilda is a pure, is pure and virginal like Eden itself. Virginal because Eden has never been plowed before, has never had farmers that put seeds inside of it in order to produce something it produces of itself. It is, uh, yes, in any case. And that is also the story of Eve. She did not know man, uh, much like Mary, while she was still in Eden. There were no children produced. And Persephone is also uh, the Greco-Roman uh, idea of a girl who is a maiden who is then taken by Hades to become queen of the underworld. Some have suggested that this is a story of a female initiation, right? Of how women go from being girls when they're preteens to becoming women when they are later adolescents. And so, uh, Persephone seems to be, I think that that is not a bad hypothesis. And in any case, she explains to us that there are two rivers in purgatory. And so we remember there were four rivers in the inferno. And so what is it that these two rivers do? And we did hear mention in the inferno that there would be at least one river that found its source in the Purgatorio. And well, one is a very famous river from mythology that we recall from Virgil's Aeneid, the Lethe. And the Lethe, we know, comes from the Greek word lanthano, which means to forget or to let, to let go of. 
And if you drink from the lethe, which Dante will do and all souls do that enter terrestrial paradise, one forgets one's sins. Because the idea is that by the time one has made it to terrestrial paradise and expunged oneself of one's sins, one has corrected one's habits, one's sinful or one's erroneous habits. So does one still need memory of the sins so that one can correct them? No. And that seems to be sort of a, mess, a message about trauma and psychotherapy from Dante. That insofar as you have a memory of something terrible you did and you've used that memory in order to correct that behavior or habit and understand what is wrong about it, that memory can poof, disappear, or no longer has practical relevance, or no longer will tear you into negative emotion when you summon it to the theater of your consciousness, which is a very powerful claim, which is very much supported by the relevant trauma literature, which talks about exposure. Huh. In any case, it seems like you have to face in yourself that which you find painful, and that's how you release yourself from that pain. Huh. Eh. Well, there's an opposing river to this. Just as there's one that makes you forget, there's one that makes you remember, you know it. But not the terrible things from your life, but rather the good things. It's like a Patronus charm for your mind. And so, the you know a recalls to you the admirable things you've done in your life. And in fact, its name, you, like eudaimonia, or eucharist, means good. And noe comes from the word noain, to think or to know. So good knowledge, or good doings, or good thoughts, really. And so it recalls to you all the ideas or all the moments that would make you strive towards a better life. It shifts your focus from that which is bad about you to that which is good about you in the world. And in fact, it replaces the negative view of the world with a good view of the world. Which must mean, which must mean that part of what Dante is saying here is that how you change your life is by changing your perspective on what life is, and that that takes actual building and practice and development of skill. And I would say that that does not sound in any way wrong. All right, we see also up here a very famous tree. It's called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It is the ultimate tree for Dante and for the medieval Catholics. It is the tree from which Eve first ate an apple, which is why the company Apple has an apple with a bite taken out of it because they share information. And she acquired consciousness. And this seems to be an idea that woman acquired consciousness and then man, being around her, then acquired it from her. And then they both realized that they were vulnerable. And in realizing that they were vulnerable, their lives became much, much worse. Because when you realize you're vulnerable, you realize that you're definitely going to what? Die. And that's what humans realized. And it was a real bummer for humans. And so, after we realized that we were going to die, we had to realize something else, which is what? Why should we even live? Because that's the hardest question in the world to answer. And so, well, hopefully, Dante's going to help give us an answer in these next few slides. Let's think about that. And so, the divine procession. The coming of consciousness is, or the coming of the liberating of the will from the expurgation of one's sin, seems to be accompanied by a great parade. A great parade with a griffin 
leading a wagon at the center. A great parade led by seven lights and 24 men with, a, with the griffin and the wagon at the center with four creatures, as they're described, about the wagon. Four women to one side of the wagon, three to the other, and then seven additional men afterwards. And those will represent the entirety of the Old Testament and the New Testament and the faith of those within, which seems to be... Hmm. I don't know if I'm ready yet to comment on that, but it seems to me that after one becomes conscious, there is something that can guide one towards meaning in one's existence. Um, and it seems as if that meaning has to come from, since Virgil is going to disappear now, from within. Because who is it that can determine for you what the meaning of your existence happens to be? It seems like something you must discover for yourself. But in any case, let's keep moving. So the procession of biblical symbols and figures. Looking across the river in terrestrial paradise, one of the rivers, Dante witnesses a spectacular pageant of religious imagery. It's actually biblical imagery literally speaking. Much of it based on Ezekiel, who was a prophet who had a vision, and the Apocalypse, which is by John. Also some by Daniel, too, and another Old Testament one. And so, first thing that we see, and imagine it's a wonderful Christmas pageant, and it really is. We see seven tall golden candles leaving behind a rainbow trail of colors. These represent the so-called sevenfold spirit of the divine, or the seven holy gifts of the Holy Spirit, or the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. Timor Dei, as opposed to Amor Dei, love of the Lord. And so these seem to be sort of opposites, like the virtues to the sins or the errors. Another list of seven, of four and Three of good things. And so these things seem to lead the way towards a good life, just as the sins lead one away down a spiral uh, funnel downwards towards uh, Lucifer. So wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, piety, fear of the Lord, those all seem like things that lead you to greater amounts of knowledge and awareness and thus help you to perceive and understand what is going around you more. Seem very helpful. All right. These candles lead the procession of biblical figures and symbols. Behind them are 24 mature, that means old, men dressed two by two in pure white. So we're going to look for white, red, and green symbolism, knowing that white represents the theological virtue of faith, green, hope, red, charity, or love. Agape is the Greek word for it. Charis is the Latin word. And so these men have crowns of lilies on their heads. Lilies are interesting choices here. Lilies are funereal flowers, ones that you give at funerals. They are white. They indicate that the person now has a new life or something like this. These are Old Testament books. There were 24 books of the Old Testament. So just as there are seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, there are 24 books of the Old Testament, and they're wearing white on their heads and white on their bodies, indicating that they're sort of dead and gone now, that... Their promise has been fulfilled. They will also be the ones that come first, as in first in time, before the uh, coming of the Bible, which is very interesting. Dante is making a very strong comment here. All right, next piece. 
continuing our procession of the biblical symbols and figures. Now, surrounding the chariot, after the seven lights and the 24 men who are wearing white, are four animals, each with six wings, which are full of eyes, like a peacock, and wearing a leafy green crown. So now we have had white tops, lilies, on the 24 books of the Old Testament, represented by the men in front of the procession. Now we have these four animals with wings with peacock feathers and green crowns, leafy green crowns, probably laurel leaf crowns, like what Dante has on the cover of this, like what you often see Caesar wearing or an Olympic athlete uh, if you saw the Athenian uh, Olympic Games. Well, between these four animals, who and they represent the four writers of the Gospels, is a wheeled chariot pulled by a griffin. The chariot is the church, and it is following along a griffin, which is a hybrid creature, two kingly creatures, the eagle and the lion. Two kingly creatures in nature, because the idea behind Jesus is that he had two natures, human and divine. Eagle, or excuse me, lion and eagle. And the reason why we can only see him now at this point, I suppose I hypothesize, as a, as a griffin, is that we do not yet have the abstract, we do not yet have the ability to abstractly formulate the idea of the divine in a non-theriomorphic form. We will get later verbal forms, we will get later spatial, like geometric forms in the form of the Trinity, and um, we will see the various ways that you can that you can uh, represent divinity as we move through the Paradiso. All right, in any case. So, the two-wheeled chariot pulled by the griffin is between the four gospel writers, or four gospels. The three dancing women, then at the right of the chariot, are colored fire red, emerald green, and snow white, like the like the Christmas colors and the Mexican and Italian flag, green, white, and red, Catholic country. Four dancing women are also to the left wheel, and they are in crimson colored garments, and they are the cardinal virtues, whereas the three dancing women on the right are the holy or theological virtues. And in fact, one of the four dancing women has three eyes, and she is prudence, clearly, because prudence is the ability to see the past, present, and future, and how they all relate to each other. All right, we'll have to finish this up tomorrow in part two, just a couple minutes.